Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. The other day, Adelie and I had the privilege of having a little daddy-daughter time at Firehouse Subs here in Covington. Now, it wasn't very crowded there, and we were eating, and in the middle of our meal, she looked at me, and she said, Daddy, most people don't follow Jesus, do they? With a lot of hesitation and with reluctance, I looked at her, and I said, No, dear, most people don't follow Jesus. And undeterred, she looked over at a man who was ordering his food. She pointed at him, and she said with joy in her face, that man over there, he follows Jesus. And then I asked, I said, well, darling, how do you know that that man follows Jesus? Without any hesitation, she said, well, he's wearing pants and shoes. A little later on in the conversation, there was another lady that came in, and she smiled just as big, she looked over at that lady, pointed at her, pointed back at me, and she said, Daddy, that lady, she follows Jesus too. And so I want to ask you just a question this morning. What in the world is a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Is a Christian someone who reads their Bible? Is a Christian someone who lives a just life? Is a Christian someone who goes to church on a regular basis? Or is a Christian someone who wears pants and shoes when it's appropriate? What does it mean to be a Christian? Listen carefully. There's only one answer to describe what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been born again. A Christian is someone who has received life when there was no life before. Being a Christian, listen carefully, doesn't change one thing about your life. Being a Christian changes your life completely. And so today at Oxford Baptist Church, I'm so glad that you're here because we really get the privilege of entering what will be a lengthy study here at Oxford. And it's very providential that you and I get to do it on the first day in the year of our Lord, 2017. It's providential that you and I, on the first day, it's the first Sunday, and so we are gathered here for this. We're going to be looking at in great detail over the next year or so on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible today, I invite you to take it and join me in Matthew chapter 5. Now, like I said, we're going to be in this passage, Matthew 5 through 7, for a long time. You don't want to miss a single Sunday. We're going to be in it or in a year or so, so hopefully you'll make it your diligence. That's so fun for me to say. Be here every Sunday for the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be here probably about 50 some odd weeks. But anyway, make sure that you're here. And let me tell you the reason that it's such a dynamic time for us. The reason is, is because we get the privilege of going through this wonderful passage of Scripture. We get the privilege of seeing the Word change our lives if we take it. If we take this opportunity, together we will grow as a body of believers. And so before we get too far into Matthew chapter 5, I think it's important for us just to remember where it is we are as well as where it is we're going. Let's remember the setting in Matthew. Now, what's Matthew been doing? Matthew, of course, it says in the very first chapter, in the very first couple of verses, Matthew is doing something. Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Now, who is Matthew? Matthew is the Spirit-filled apostle. And what he's doing, he is interpreting Jesus for us. That's important. Matthew is interpreting 
Jesus for us. He's just not telling us about Jesus. He is interpreting Jesus for us. Now, you and I can't interpret Jesus on our own. If we simply try to interpret Jesus outside of the bounds of someone who was there, then we'll get it wrong. We can interpret Jesus on our own. We'll get it wrong. But Matthew's interpretation of Jesus can be trusted. And the reason it can be trusted is because Matthew was there. Matthew saw Jesus raise the dead. Matthew saw Jesus heal the sick. Matthew saw Jesus die on a cross. Matthew saw Jesus raised back to life. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. See, Matthew, he was so close to Jesus that he knew what Jesus smelt like. He knew more about Jesus than any of us did. And he was commissioned specifically by the Holy Spirit to tell us what he saw, to tell us who Jesus is. And so this is exactly what Matthew is doing. It's important for you to view Scripture this way. Because Matthew is not just recalling events. He's not just telling us about this time that Jesus went climbing up on a mountain and began to open His mouth and teach. Listen carefully. The Bible is a theological work. Matthew is interpreting theologically for us this one time in history where the eternal Son of God became incarnate so that He could come and seek and save the lost ones. So Matthew's telling this story of Jesus who's coming to remake the world. He has come into the world to reorder the world to Himself. And that's a good thing because we know who He is. He is love in the flesh. He is absolute perfection. And so this Jesus who Matthew is telling us about has come to put things back in order. Jesus has come to a broken world in order that He may set it straight. And the way that He does this is very important. The way that Jesus is going to take the world and make it straight is by His life. He comes to live so that He can die. And then from death, He comes back to life. All for one reason. So that He can undo our brokenness. So that He can take a world that has been broken and He can set it straight Again, He can come into a world that is full of death. And into that world full of death, He can offer it life. And the way that He offers it life is by His own life. Remember what John, another apostle who was there, said of Jesus? said He is the way, the truth. And then what does He say about Him? He is the life. And so at the beginning of His life, we have this Jesus. Look at chapter 4 just for a moment. Chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so at the very beginning of Jesus' life, He comes preaching. He comes proclaiming a message of good news. He comes detailing for us, telling us then in this Sermon on the Mount what it means to be a subject of His kingdom. What it means to be a citizen of His kingdom. What life in the kingdom of God looks like. So let's begin today, Matthew. And I just want us to look at the first two verses today, just so that we can hear the word of the Lord. And then I want you to maintain your Bible there in front of you. 
Because what I want to do is by the time we get to the end of this message, I want you to be able to go through, we're just going to hit the highlights, look at the divisions in the text, and try to figure out how the Sermon on the Mount is all put together. So have that Bible right there in front of you. But hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, the first two verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege you give us of coming to this moment of hearing God speak to us. Thank you, Lord God, that you speak through your word. Father, I pray that as I preach your word, that it would be clear that, Father, that we would not hear the voice of a man but that, Lord, that this man would be faithful to proclaim your voice in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And let me just say this. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount, I cannot emphasize enough, I cannot overemphasize the sheer weight of what it is that you and I are about to approach. There's a reason why we're going to be in this text for a matter of a year or more. There's a reason why I think that we're going to slow down and look very closely at this Sermon on the Mount because this is so weighty and so important for us to understand. So important for us to get right. What this is, what we have before us, and you know this, this is true of the whole Bible. Not just true of Matthew chapter 5-7, through 7, but true of the entire Bible. This is God's holy Word written for our instruction, written so that we may know what life is. And see, I think that as we approach this, we would do well to have the habit of the old church. And before we think too far about coming to a passage like this, before we think too far about approaching Scripture in some haphazard manner, we would do well to have the habit of the old church and approach Scripture on our knees find ourselves in humility as we do our diligence to hear the voice of God. And so today, in our hearing, we have God's Word delivered to us. And most of you out there are very unaware of just how providential this is. Think about it just for a moment. On this first day of the year, January the 1st, in a brand new year, 2017, God has brought before you today His Word so that you may hear it. His Word handed down long ago. His Word handed down through many difficulties, handed down through many obstacles, handed down, but yet preserved for you. Many of you this morning, Maybe it was a little hectic in your house, like my house was this morning. Maybe it was a little hectic trying to get yourself together or find the, the right uh, cold steel or whatever those uh, oatmeal that you like is, whatever it is that you like. Maybe it was a little difficult for you to get your hair in place like you like it. Maybe it was a little difficult for you to get here because of the night that you had before. But providentially, you're here. And I don't believe you're here by any accident. I believe you're here because God has directed your path to this position. I just want you to think just for a moment 
Let this sink in. Today, God has a word for you. The God of the ages, the God of the universe, today has a word for you. So let's do our diligence as we seek to climb the Sermon on the Mount. Let's avoid at all costs any superficial thoughts about worship. And let's do our diligence today to feel the weight of glory. Now the Sermon on the Mount, just as a whole, it confronts any superficial thoughts that you and I have about worship. And I want to encourage you to do this. As we're going to be looking at this thing over the next course of a year or so, I want to encourage you to do this. Read through the Sermon on the Mount in one setting on a regular basis. Go through it. Read through it. And as you read the sermon, you will see beauty. As you read the sermon, you will feel the weight of glory crushing you under what our Lord has as His high demands. And so look at the sermon just for a minute. What's so heavy about the sermon? This sermon, and many of you are very familiar with the sermon because many of you have grown up in this church even for a long time and in other churches. What's so heavy about the sermon? Here's what's so heavy about the sermon. Everything in the sermon is normal for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Everything that we see in this sermon is normal for everyone who loves Jesus. You see, sometimes people read over the sayings of the sermon and they forget that the sermon is a description of all of those who trust Jesus. Now you say that, well, pastor, I look at this sermon here and I see a lot of things that are unattainable. I see some things that are so high and unattainable. And the reason that perhaps they are so high and unattainable is because of the dullness in our own hearts. Maybe the reason they're so high and unattainable is because we pay more attention to their backdrop. We pay more attention to the dark world that they are put in backdrop to instead of the text itself. Listen carefully. We have a God in heaven who has come to deliver us from the dominion of darkness. And He has come to transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we have before us today Jesus coming Jesus proclaiming the message. Jesus proclaiming good news. Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Teaching and healing every kind of disease, every kind of affliction. And so the sayings that he has on this sermon, as he begins to tell us what is just a normal characteristic of the followers of him, the point is is that the sayings on the sermon are meant to be lived out by you and me. You see, the sayings don't just float up to the clouds. They're meant to penetrate our hearts and change us forever. And I believe that the whole key text or the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Let's look at that together. Listen to what it says. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The reason I believe that that's the heart of the sermon is because of how Matthew places the sermon. Look at what comes before. Look at this very carefully in Matthew chapter 4. Here, Jesus is beginning His ministry in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Look closely at the Bible. He has heard that John has been arrested. He's withdrawing into Galilee. Then we see that Scripture is being fulfilled. Those dwelling in darkness, they're seeing a great light on them. A light has dawned. And then He began in verse 17 to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, then look at what happens. His preaching is interrupted. His preaching is interrupted in verse 18 through 22 when He calls His first disciples. And then so we go from His preaching, then we go to Jesus calling the disciples. And then what does Jesus do in verse 23? He goes back to preaching. You see that? Here, what's He doing then? Look at what comes before. Jesus begins His ministry. He calls the twelve. And then what does He go? He goes back to mission. In other words, Matthew wants us to see that Christ wants us to live this life that He is calling to us so that we may live it before others. The life that God is calling us to is not to be lived in a vacuum, not to be lived behind some stained glass windows. The life that God is calling us to is to be lived in the world, is to be lived before others, is to be lived on mission. And for most of us, this is where we all fall off. Because we're fine to affix a nice saying from the Sermon on the Mount on our wall. We like thinking about forgiving others. We like thinking about different parts of the Sermon on the Mountain. Having it ascribed on a t-shirt saying that, yes, I'm a Christian, this is what I do. But then the rubber hits the road and an opportunity comes. When it comes to actually putting it in practice, when it comes to actually turning the other cheek, when it comes to actually forgiving others who spitefully use us, when it comes for us not looking at people with lust or not retaliating against others, when it comes for us to giving to the needy or fasting or not worrying, and that's where most of us fall off and miss the importance of a sermon on the mount. Listen carefully to me. God has called us to the Sermon on the Mount. He has called us to this purpose to live out, even with all the difficulty and friction that goes with, He has called us to live the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus has come to bring the Kingdom. And He is beginning to bring the Kingdom. And listen carefully, the Kingdom is the goal of all of Scripture. The Kingdom of God is the goal of the entire earth. The world is desperately grasping, desperately looking for men and women to show them what it means to live. To show them what it means to hope. Just look at what's happening in our current political climate in America. Just look at what happened and the election that we just had. What a display of divisiveness on both sides. As we were drugged as a country down this road where we had to watch a 
war of words with one side bloodthirsty and the other side bloodthirsty throwing a war of words at each other. Why are people so invested in politics? And there's one thing that we know if you've been keeping up with anything. People are invested and entrenched in politics. There's nothing wrong with politics. As long as when you're in politics, you have the right perspective. You see, here's the reason people are so invested in politics is because hopeful people are misplacing their hope in politics. I read a comment the other day from a leading member of the outgoing administration. As they were reflecting about what was coming through the incoming president, this individual said, listen carefully, now we know how the loss of hope feels. I read that and I was fascinated. Because if you remember correctly, the entire campaign slogan of the previous administration was hope and change. Listen carefully. Politics can't give everlasting hope. If you think here today that the Republican Party is going to give you I hope that you know Jesus. I hope that you know the kind of hope that Jesus Christ can give. If you here today think that the Democratic Party can give you hope, I hope that you know Jesus. Because there is no one who can give hope quite like Jesus. You see, here's the good thing that Jesus has said. Jesus has come. And in His coming, he has come to bring His kingdom. He has come to bring hope to the world. He has come to bring a kingdom that is everlasting. He has come to bring a kingdom that will never pass away. He has come to bring us a hope that we need. He has come to bring everything that we need. Everything that we could ever hope for is found in Jesus' coming. And oftentimes I think about us and we often think about revival and look forward to revival and pray for revival and wish that revival would come. But what would happen if you and I took the sayings of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount? What would happen if you and I took, thus saith the Lord, and applied it to our lives and tried our diligence to live out the Sermon on the Mount. That is, try to live out what it is that we're called to live. To live the Sermon on the Mount. You see, this sermon is meant to be lived. It's not meant to be hung up on your wall somewhere or kept in a Bible and let it get dusty on your dashboard of your car. It's meant to be lived out. The reason that Jesus has come, listen, was to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Titus Chapter 2 and verse 14. This passage says, it's a great passage. I wanted to read the whole thing, but just listen to this one part. It says, Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purity for Himself and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that mean? It means that Jesus 
has made a way for us to live the Sermon on the Mount. And the way that He's done it is by the self-giving of Himself for us. Now don't miss this. This is important. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of who we already are in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of who we already are in Christ as well as who it is that we will be. You see, we look at the Sermon on the Mount and it's not so much a picture of of, uh, something for us to attain as it is a picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ has come to secure for us. We are told to live this way for one reason. Jesus says, this is who you are. This is the characteristics of people in my kingdom. This is living. This is what life is all about. This is the life that I have come to secure for you. This is the hope of the world. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, we have come this far, so let's let's quickly walk through the sermon so that we can see what life is all about. Number one this morning, if you're taking notes. Number one. Life is only found in Jesus. Look at this. Chapter 5 here very carefully. I love what comes first. This sermon strikes us because really there's nothing like it on the earth. Look at what comes first. Of supreme importance is what comes first. And what comes first? What do you have in your, in your chapter heading? Now I know I told you, don't pay attention to the chapter headings. They're not inspired. But in this case, I want you to disregard that and just pay attention for our sermon today at what the Bible says. So what comes first? The Beatitudes. Right away, if you know anything about the Beatitudes, or if you're, if you're making notes, write this down. If you've never read the Beatitudes before, the Beatitudes are a reversal of everything that we know. The Beatitudes are a reversal of everything that the world holds dear. And everything that the world holds dear is confronted by these just eight sayings of Jesus that we call the Beatitudes. And I think that it comes first. It's of supreme importance. The reason why these Beatitudes come first is because at the base of the mountain, if we're thinking about this sermon as a mountain itself for us to climb, for us to get to, at the base of the mountain are these statements, these eight statements that reveal the impossibility of this life that Jesus is calling us to. Look at this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Who wants to be poor in spirit? Jesus says, if you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. How many of you want to mourn in 2017? Jesus says, you'll be comforted. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. They're the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones who will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They're the ones who receive mercy. The pure in heart. They're the ones who will see God. And on and on and on it goes. Showing us that this life that Christ is calling us to is unlike anything that we have ever seen. Unlike anything that the world has ever known before. Letting us know that this life that God is calling us to is an impossible life. It's not just, listen carefully, if you haven't gotten this, get it today. The Christian life is not just hard, it's impossible. You can't live it apart from being born again. 
You can't live it unless a life is given to you. You can't live this Christian life unless God enables you, empowers you by His Spirit to live it. And so what does He do here? He shows us this high mountain, but listen, He doesn't just say, "All right, now go and get it yourself. He comes alongside us. Takes us by the hand. Gives us life. So that we can continue the climb. And if we're careful and we look at the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes reveal just how peculiar this life is. This life, this life comes in contact with the world. And they play themselves out in real world scenarios. There again, this life is meant to be lived. It's not just to be tucked under some bed somewhere so that you can pull it out whenever you want to. You're having a bad day, you just pull out the Beatitudes. I feel better about myself. I'm, I'm mourning now. This life is meant to be lived. And look at this. It plays itself out in real life scenarios like anger. You see that in chapter 5? It plays itself out in real life scenarios like lust. Like divorce. Oaths. Retaliation. And then how it is we love our enemies. You see, here's the point of why I think that we need to understand very important as a foundational truth, the only way for us to live this life is for this life to be given to us. The Christian life is not something that you can achieve. It's something that you're given as a free gift by faith through grace. It's a free gift that God gives us by faith through grace. We must receive the life that Jesus has given. And listen carefully. There is no life outside of Jesus. Life is only found in Jesus. So then we come to the close of chapter 5 and we enter chapter 6. And if you look closely at chapter 6, we get to chapter 6 and see that the life that we are called to is nothing more than a life that's filled full of seeking after God. Depending upon God for all things. Number two this morning, life is depending on God for all things. Life is only found in Jesus. And this life is depending on God for all things. That's what it is, as Oswald Chambers used to say. We are those who obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. We are those who take everything that we do, place it in the hands of God's obedience. Whatever consequences come as a result of that, we take. Because our life is a life of depending upon God for all things. Now, you heard me say Oswald Chambers say that, and that's, that's where he said it. My pastor, Charles Stanley, he says it too, and he says something else. He said the opposite is true. We like that. Obey God, leave all the consequences to Him. But Charles Stanley says the opposite of that is true. If we disobey God, guess what? We can leave all of those consequences to Him too. Living the Christian life is a life of depending upon God for all things. Look at this in chapter 6. What does this mean? It means when the rest of the world wants to call us away, we have our Lord calling us to life through the Sermon on the Mount. And look how it plays out. Look in the very first section. We do things of charity. Not so that we'll be noticed by others. But so that we'll live a life pleasing to God. When we pray, 
We know that we have an audience of one. We pray for one reason, to please Him. To know Him. When we fast, we do so for one reason. God. And then look at this. We know that as verse 19 through 24 of chapter 6 tell us, we know that Christ is the greatest treasure that we seek. And because we already have Him, verse 25 through the end of the chapter, because we already have the greatest treasure, we are, we are not anxious about anything. You see, this is living. This is what life is all about. Depending upon God for all things. And then we get into chapter 7. And by the time we get to chapter 7, we know where we are. We're in the presence of God. We are those who have been taught that everything we do, life is living only when we live it to God. Only when we live it for God. So our entire direction by the time we get to chapter 7 has been turned, has been twisted, has been directed in one way to the right way so that we know that there's only one thing that we do. And that is we are those who seek to live in the presence of God. You see, chapter 7 is there to remind us that true living is living in the presence of God. What does it mean? It means that we make it our ambition, no matter what, to be pleasing to God. Number three this morning, true living. If we're going to have true life, then it means that we have to live a life that is fully pleasing to God. So we know that as His followers, we are living for eternity. And the only reason that we want to live this way is clear. Look at the way the, the passage ends in chapter 7 and verse 24. The reason we want to live this way is because this is the only thing that lasts. We are those who are building our house on the rock. True living is living to please God. I love the way the Sermon on the Mount ends. As if there's any question in our minds. The way the Sermon on the Mount ends is so important. Look at it in verse 28 of chapter 7. When Jesus finished these things, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teachings. For He was teaching them as one who had authority. And not as their scribes. You see, we know that this is life because the author of life has come to us. We know that this is living because Jesus, who Himself is the way, the truth, and the life, has come to show us what it means to live. True living is living to please God. Life is depending on God for all things, and life is only found in Jesus. And so as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, if this is what living is, I wonder how much living is going on. If this is what living is, how much living is going on? Are you living this morning? What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is one who has life in the Son. A Christian is one who says, for me to live is Christ. 
A Christian is one who looks at the Sermon on the Mount and sees a portrait of themselves and then takes every effort to make the portrait that is set before them more clear in their own lives. As we think about 2017 this year, I want to just encourage us together as a church, let's live this year. Let's not go through any humdrum routine that we've been going through before. Let's make it our ambition this year to know what life is as we draw closer and closer to Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? And as we stand together, let's pray together over our year. Stand together and pray over what all God has for us. Let's pray together. Lord, You have come to give us abundant life. And You have shown us what it means to live. Lord, You have put us in this world for this purpose. Please help us to work out this purpose in each moment of every day. We are helpless apart from Your enablement. We are all Yours, Lord. We cast our entire selves upon Your mercies. Take our lives. Enable us to glorify You in all that we say, in all that we do, in all of our thoughts, in all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.